0: Welcome back to the Litigation Psychology Podcast. Dr. Bill Kanaski. This is part two with attorney Larry Shaft and Jefferson Morley discussing the JFK Records Act, uh, their lawsuit, uh, where we're at now. Uh part one was just absolutely phenomenal uh and fascinating. And we're gonna jump back into that. I want I wanna jump into the weeds here a little bit. Um Jeff, with the uh, the the latest document release, um, which turns out which turns out to be another nothing burger for the most part. You know, we get all this news. Oh, there's another, you know, release of documents. And then two weeks later, it's like, yeah, same old, same old, same old. But there was one uh, memo in there, uh, which I found uh, very interesting, which I'd like you to comment on the uh, uh, Schlesinger memo which I read yeah. the whole thing yesterday and pretty much, yeah, this is a memo that pretty much uh, this guy writes this uh, very detailed memo, essentially saying um, the CIA, the the CIA needs to be reorganized. Uh, they got too much autonomy. They're not being monitored. And then there was a pretty good, uh, uh, this is right after the Bay of pigs. Right. right. And um, uh, which was a complete shit show and then does a pretty uh, interesting compare and contrast of how uh the CIA is uh organized and run versus how um, MI6 uh right. is uh in the whole you know the contrast of structure power uh, uh a- a- accountability can you educate our audience particularly our our younger attorneys on um, particularly who the CIA was in the 50s and 60s and why this memo? because this is a powerful memo correct yeah, so um, the memo you're talking
1: about, it was written by Arthur Schlesinger, who was a <coughs> professor of American history at Harvard, um, had an intelligence background himself, had served in the Office of Strategic Services um, during World War II. So was you know familiar with the structure of, uh, of an intelligence agency and how it worked. And he was an advisor to JFK. Um, and so after the Bay of Pigs happens, the Bay of Pigs is the CIA presents President Kennedy with this plan. We're going to overthrow Fidel Castro in Cuba. You you know, don't worry about it. And then the whole thing goes south. It was a completely ridiculous plan. And Kennedy had said, well, you know, go ahead, but I'm not going to, we're not going to have U.S. troops. We're not going to use U.S. uh, Air air support. You know, you guys have to do it on their own. When the whole thing went south, Kennedy said, I told you, And the men at the Bay of Pigs felt betrayed by the president. And there was a lot of bad feeling. Kennedy felt he'd been set up. He'd been handed a bad plan. He'd been told it was a good plan and he could see that it wasn't. He felt like he'd been a fool to take the word of the CIA. Mm -hmm. So, you know, at that point, that was the most humiliating experience of the CIA uh, in its 14 years of existence. It had come into existence in 1947 as the successor to the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS was a wartime intelligence agency. The CIA became a peacetime intelligence agency, and in the '50s, they were the good guys. You know, if they overthrew a government, well, that was you know we were on the right side. The Soviet Union was bad. The CIA was you know was very glamorous and respectable among liberals and conservatives. Um, the Bay of Pigs was like, wait a second. It was like a humiliating defeat. Kennedy was like. Why did I go along with this? And so Schlesinger steps in and he analyzes the problem for the president. And the problem, as Schlesinger sees it, is that the CIA is basically a policy-making organization, and the State uh-huh. Department is like blindsided, preempted, um, you know, made to look bad. And the, it's the contradiction that the, that can't be supported anymore, according to Schlesinger. And maybe we need to reorganize uh-huh. the CIA. Kennedy himself is thinking this, he told somebody, uh, you know, he was venting, but he said, you know, I'd like to split the shatter to the CIA into 1000 pieces and scatter it to the winds. He didn't do that. But, you know, he was alienated and that and likewise people at the agency were very alienated with him. So it's a real crisis in the point of the CIA. Schlesinger steps in and says we should reorganize it. Well, what do we care about it today? Well, that document was up for declassification. Okay, now it's not a CIA document. Arthur Schlesinger wasn't a CIA officer, so it doesn't have the names of living informants or operations or anything. May it may refer to operations, but there's no living informants in there. Um, It wasn't a class. It wasn't the document wasn't classified when it was created. It was. Happened two years before the assassination, so you know it was supposed to be declassified, and that was one of the documents that we had identified in our lawsuit. This is a test case for for Biden, so we go and look at it. And you know what they did, Bill? There's about a page and a half of declassified, a solid block, a whole block of the memo is is declassified, probably three four hundred words. They declassified one sentence. Wow and the rest of it is still secret 60 years later and so you know what what that tells me is the alienation of the CIA and the Kennedy's white house is still a sensitive issue 60 years later and it's related to the assassination that's what the CIA is telling us very clearly with their secrecy measures this is too sensitive we don't want to talk about this right now because the alienation of the white house and the cia is a factor is somehow related to the assassination that very information that is contained in the memo is embarrassing to the cia and that's why they're keeping it off the record it has nothing it has nothing to do with national security
0: that's absolutely incredible and disappointing. i mean it's funny you know we uh The topic of classified documents has been pretty popular uh, lately uh, in the media. We'll probably get the contents of Hunter uh, Biden's laptop before we get the records you're looking for, uh, unfortunately. Maybe not, Bill. Here's the problem. If you can't declassify (laughs) 60-year-old
2: records, right, how are you going to declassify records from four years ago or or eight years ago, right? I mean, it may be 60 The way this is going, they may be 60 years from now, they'll be talking about Biden, Hunter Biden's... Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and the, are the agencies
1: in, involved in these controversies today, right? Are they trustworthy, you know? And by its behavior, the CIA and the FBI, by demanding ridiculous and suspicious secrecy 60 years after the fact they open themselves up to suspicion and they invite it and you know what we can tell they don't care they don't care if the public suspects them on this they'd rather have the power to keep the information secret and you know that's what that's why this matters today you know our 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 political system is locked in gridlock over fights over you know should this information be classified was it handled properly and all of that and the agencies at the heart of the struggle the unelected agencies at the heart of the struggle behave in an untrustworthy manner. You know the whole thing is completely corrosive to, you know, actually running a republic, a, a government. You know, it, it, it's very, very dysfunctional. And at the heart of it is this secrecy. And at the heart of the whole secrecy issue is this very small but very important issue of secrecy around JFK records. It's the symbol of the dysfunction that we're seeing at the top of the
2: political system now. The people, so you have people that work for these agencies, their job is to decide if records are to be declassified or not, right? This is their day-to-day job.
0: Yeah. And
2: if you're working in that position, you're going to be conservative, not, I don't mean by politically. you're going to be cautious about releasing records. And you have people in your agency that are going to be pressuring you not to release them. It, we really Mm -hmm. This is an opportunity to rethink, and Jeff and I feel you know, we were too young for the church committee uh, time. Uh, This is a unique moment in American history when we're we're reevaluating the the whole process of classifying (laughs) records. They did that in, in the church committee, and there were some reforms done, but this is now an opportunity, and maybe we need to have an independent body like the ARB for all of these agencies because, as long as we have people working within the agency that are tasked with making these decisions, they're always going to come. It's just human nature. Yeah. Always going to come out on the side. You know, they could be completely in good faith, uh, honest people. But it, it, that's why we had a financial crisis. And, you know, every per- person in that financial crisis was they had a little role to play and they were doing their role, but they were contributing to this overall problem. So it, it's a systemic problem in our country. Yeah, the JFK is, as Jeff said, it's just one piece, but it's the it's the it's the red flashing red light.
0: Yeah, <laughs> now now now, Larry. During the break, uh, we we talked um, a, a little bit. You, you said you know, hey, you know, the the JFK Act is still the law. Um, can you talk about um, what what the Gannon memo uh, is? And um, I, I I read it yesterday um, and did some research on that, and what it what it sounds like. Is um, a justification for not following the JFK uh, Act uh, on these document uh, um, re- releases, and um, um, seems to be uh, did not get as much attention uh, uh, as I thought it would. But it almost looks to um, almost, for lack of a better word, replace the language in the JFK Act. What who who is Gannon? Uh, the memo was written right before uh, Trump, uh, I believe, had the opportunity to release these records in 2017. And what's the main uh, argument uh, there presented in the memo?
2: So let me first start with, you're right, the JFK Act, um, the obligations, um, the agencies are have a continuing obligation uh, under the JFK Act. After the review board went out of business, they still... There is still an obligation to do periodic review of records. Um, and the act remains in effect until the archivist certifies to Congress that the Act's requirements have been met and satisfied at that w- w- which point in time, then the act would no longer become an active law. it would it would go away. Um, and one of the counts in our complaint is uh, we are seeking injunctive relief. And one of the requests we're making is for the court to instruct the archivist not to make this determination until such time as the court would retain jurisdiction over the matter. And they would uh, make that because we want to make sure that the archivist does not say, you know, in, um. by the way, President Biden's order in June, uh, in December provided for another review and decision at the end of June, like six months after 60 years is gonna be a difference, right? Yeah. Yeah. But, but let's let's assume for the moment that something miraculous happens, right? All of the remaining records that are in the collection are released in full. What well, we don't want until the issues that we have been raised in our lawsuit um, are adequately addressed for the, we don't want the archivist then saying, okay, it's all, we're all done, this is finished. Um, we don't want that certification to be made. Um, Curtis Gannon uh, was a Department of Justice attorney. Um, when the president issues uh, executive memorandum or executive order, the usual procedure is for the order to be re- reviewed by the Department of Justice for um, to make sure that it meets all the requirements for the president to issue an order the order is effective on the administrative agencies within the executive branch. I was, the president cannot issue an executive order against Congress, right? So um, so Curtis Gannon wrote a very, very good memo, um, Give him a lot of credit, he's a very smart lawyer, justifying a six-month extension of a postponement for six months from October, to April of 2018. Um, and I can't go into it too much because it's the subject of our litigation, sure. um, but he he did um, seem to rewrite the statute um, <laughs> in order to support the six month postponement, but in any event, the memo did not support a three and a half year postponement I have not seen, and any, and the other age, uh, other nonprofits who have filed Freedom of Information Act lawsuits have not seen either, any Department of Justice memo supporting the April 2018 order for three and a half years. So uh, the Curtis memo was used. Now, interestingly, Curtis Gannon uh, was also the attorney who drafted the Muslim ban order.
0: No way. Yes. <laughs> oh yes. wow. Yeah. We'll figure.
2: So he um he played a big role in uh, in that administration. <laughs> Jeff, I believe he's in the Solicitor General's office now, if uh, my recollection is correct. Um in any event, uh, you know, his memo was instrumental in getting given the legal support to to Trump for the six, the first 6 month memo uh, postponement, but it by its terms, and it was limited to a very cer- specific section of the statute. Um, it was whether Section Five G two D authorized a temporary certification. It wow. did not. Re- it did not refer to the other Section Six, um, which is the one that requires clear and convincing evidence. So it was a very limited. It was he was asked to respond to a limited um, issue. And it was for just for six months, a short-term postponement. The rationale used in that memo, do not, you know, does not appear to apply to a three and a half year postponement. And we have no evidence that a second memo was written. Was that the 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 2018 order from Trump was either reviewed by Department of Justice or that there was a memo supporting that extension?
0: Wow. Now, now Jeff, you are on Jeff. You're on mute. So un- unmute yourself. <laughs> Oh, sorry about that. Okay. You know,
1: and in larger context, what you see is, you know, the government's mobilizing its superior resources in defense of these extreme and suspicious sec- secrecy demands. So you have these high-powered lawyers who, you know, they're they're out to justify what the executive branch wants. They're not out to get compliance with the JFK Records Act, their posture, (laughs) their basic posture is part of the problem, right? It's like, wait a second, there's a law here, you're the Justice Department, why don't you want to see that law enforced? And it's coming from the top, the president doesn't, and the CIA want to evade the accountability structures. So the legal resources are mobilized on behalf of secrecy. I don't think
2: it's the National Security Council, which drives at least KFK Act. That's where the decisions are made uh, about what's to be postponed. Well, that's where the the apparatus for making decisions is located. The agencies, you know, will contact the National Security Council. They make a recommendation to the president. And I don't see any president. Um, you know, look what happened over the last week. The Army recommended to Biden not to shoot down the the yeah. balloon, right? Yeah. <laughs> Um, so they waited until the balloon crossed the country. I mean, the president is not going to go against his expert, you know, advisors. So th- th- it's it's just uh, you know that's the situation we're in.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm going to re- read from the uh, this is section five of the JFK uh, Act that essentially says everything should be disclosed unless the president certifies that quote and uh, uh, identi- uh an identifiable harm to the military defense, intelligence operations, law enforcement, or conduct of foreign relations necessitates continued postponement of disclosure and quote-unquote outweighs the public interest in disclosure. That's the big fight, right?
2: Yeah, yeah and, and it goes on to say that the gravity, I believe that's the section also where it says that it is such a such gravity that it outweighs yeah. Identifiable harm. Interestingly, again, your lawyer listeners will will find this of interest when in Biden's uh, December, uh, October 2021 memo, they didn't use the term identifiable harm, they used anticipated harm. Oh, <laughs> um, and uh, but they corrected that problem in the 2022 memo. We, we, we just recently had to amend our complaint to reflect the 2022
0: memo, as well as the 2021 memo. Very, very interesting. Now, I'm going to wrap up at the end with kind of where your lawsuit's at and what's what's going to happen going forward. But let's get into some sexy stuff before we do that. Because I know this is Jeff's uh, uh, favorite topic here, which is, which is Mexico City. And I've read all Jeff's stuff. I've watched countless YouTube videos of Jeff. And every time I read or watch them for Jeff, it's just like, wow, just wow, wow, wow. And then when I read this Quinn Scott book, I was like, just took my breath away. Um, absolutely uh, astounding stuff in that book. It's a it's a it's a absolute must read uh, on this stuff. And uh, a, a lot of emphasis on um Oswald, uh, you know, uh, weeks before the assassination and his uh, activity, I believe, in September um um, 1963 uh, in mexico city what he was doing how closely he was being surveilled i mean is just off um of 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 the charts and again just doesn't get enough public attention because obviously what the warren commission is oh yeah we didn't know who this lone nut no idea who he was yet uh now we know that was very far from the case right jeff
1: Yeah. So in Our Man in Mexico, I tell the story of of, of the the chief of the Mexico City station, who was regarded as as one of the best CIA officers in the clandestine service. He had come out of the OSS. um, He'd become station chief in Mexico City in 1956. And usually a CIA station chief is only in a country for three or four years. And then standard procedure is to rotate them out Winscott was so powerful in Mexico that he was allowed to stay for 13 years. Wow. And his the, the surveillance operations that were mounted by his station were considered state of the art in terms of the agency's procedures. So in the in our man in Mexico, I tell the story of what did the assassination look like through this guy's eyes, right? Yeah. I mean, I wasn't I didn't have a theory. Whatever he thought was 10 times more interesting than whatever I thought. And so I tell the story, and you see in there a couple of things. One, Oswald's watched very closely from day one. Yes. Two, the CIA lies about it to the Warren Commission. Yep. Three, Win Scott knows that his friends that his friend Dick Helms has lied to the Warren Commission. <laughs> and later, after he retires, he writes a memoir in which he says, "You know, the Warren Commission said we didn't know anything about Oswald in Mexico City. Mm-hmm. That's not true. He writes in his memoir. I was in charge. We followed him the whole way, and he tells the story, and the records back him up. Of course, they had him watched. Any American who walked into a Soviet or Cuban diplomatic office was watched, contacted or surveilled, you know, to figure out who he was. That was the mm-hmm. CIA's job. So they knew all about Oswald. and when Scott knew that what something was going on with this guy, and he wasn't responsible. And so Scott writes this this memo, this memoir. To, you know, to, I think, to defend himself. He this is around the time of Jim Garrison. There's a lot of questions about the Warren Commission talk of reopening the investigation. And when Scott is saying in his memoir, somebody screwed up, but it wasn't me. And he he and when Scott concluded that the assassination was the product of a what he said was a communist conspiracy. He too rejected the Warren Commission. So from the inside of the CIA, super loyal guy super competent guy. And even he doesn't believe the official story and who would know better than somebody who had a front row seat on the surveillance of Oswald. So with that as the backstory, and you see they're still hiding stuff about Oswald in Mexico City today. They're still hiding stuff about the surveillance techniques about the relationship with the Mexican government. You know you know that this is what's most sensitive to them and, and,
0: and, and what they don't wanna talk about today. And I mean, isn't the I because I, I find the, the the Mexico City information um, and, and Oswald's behavior um, absolutely just ground shaking, right? <laughs> to this, yes.
1: uh,
0: so let me let me let me ex- let me explain to yeah. people what what
1: yeah. happened. Oswald took a bus to Mexico City in, in in late September 1963. He'd been living in New Orleans. And he'd been talking with his wife Marina about going back to the Soviet Union. They just had a second child. Marina didn't speak English. And I think they wanted her to go back with her mother have somebody to take care of the kids. So Oswald goes to Mexico City. He goes to the Cuban consulate and he applies for a visa. And he says he wants to travel to Cuba and then back to the Soviet Union where he had lived, where he had met Marina. And there's some suggestion that he was looking for a way to take his wife and children back with him. So he applies and the Cuban consulate is a locus of CIA intelligence. They've got a pulse camera on the door outside that takes a picture whenever that door opens. That day and the next day, Oswald goes through that door three times. So there's six opportunities for the CIA to photograph him. Mm -hmm. Um, The pulse camera, it was later determined, was working that day despite a CIA story that it wasn't. Two CIA officers in the station later said that Win Scott had showed them a photograph, a surveillance photograph of, of Oswald. And they described it was taken from overhead, which is where the camera was located and all of that. No such photos ever surfaced. I think Win Scott had them, but he never shared them with anybody because obviously that kind of material was radioactive yeah. and highly classified. So Oswald, uh, the Cubans say no, if you're gonna go through the Soviet Union, you have to get the Soviet visa first. So he goes to the Soviet embassy, picks up a call, uh, you know, makes a call, goes in, has a meeting um, uh, uh, with, the, with the Soviet officials. They tell him, no, you have to apply for a visa in Washington, um, and he leaves. He calls back on the following Monday or somebody calls back and identifies themselves as Oswald. The CIA translator says, this person spoke terrible Russian, wasn't very good. Well, Oswald spoke good Russian. Everybody who knew him, he he had, he had some facility for the language. He'd lived there for a couple of years. He'd married a Russian woman who didn't speak English. You know, he knew how to speak Russian. So that raised the question, well, was somebody impersonating Oswald there? Now, I interviewed Ann Goodpasture. She was a senior officer. Yeah. She was kind of right, Winscott's right-hand man. I mean, in those days, there were no CIA female undercover officers, but Ann Goodpasture really was an undercover officer and Winscott scott gave her everything he depended on her in a way that he depended on nobody else she was in charge of the surveillance so when the tapes come in of this phone call she gets the tra- they go to the to the translators and then the translators send it to her and then she would take those documents and give them to the appropriate officer who handled you know the cuban affairs or soviet affairs or whatever so ann Goodpasture told me she was retired i interviewed her in dallas in 2006 she said, yeah, there was a tape of Oswald and when Scott had it. It was in his office safe. Um, she said, mm-hmm. the story that the that the that the CIA told the Warren Commission was those tapes were erased before November 22nd, sometime between when it happened in early October and November 22nd. That wasn't true, Ann Goodpasture said. Whenever there was a conversation of interest, we'd make a little a dub off of that tape. And so we just have that conversation, which makes sense. An American walking in there was, to the Cuban consulate or the Soviet embassy was, that was a big deal. That was something you wanted to capture a record of. Mm -hmm. So she told me, yeah, we had a tape and when Scott had squirreled it away in his office safe, she said the same thing under oath to the review board. So very solid information that there was a tape of Oswald that survived the assassination. There's credible testimony that there were photographs of Oswald that survived the assassination. All of this vanishes, which points to the fact that key facts in the investigation were withheld from the start. It's it, it's it's un, indisputable, um, you know, the record of what we see of what happened in Mexico City. So, Oswald is frustrated. He's not going to get a visa to go to Cuba. So he goes back. Um, he goes back to Texas, and the FBI is watching him closely. They note that he's back in Texas, and they send. By the end of the month, they send the CIA a cable about Oswald saying. We know he returned from Mexico City, and uh, he's living in the Dallas area. J. Edgar Hoover sends that report, dated October 30th, 1963, to the the CIA. And the CIA counterintelligence staff signs for that report on November 14th, 1963. So the top of the CIA is informed that Oswald is in Texas eight days before the president is killed. That is absolutely astounding.
0: Yeah, I mean, and so, and,
1: and, and we have no explanation of, you know, why no action was taken, what was going on, what did these people think, what, who did they think Oswald was, we have none of that. And when you see this record, you realize we didn't really have a real investigation of who Oswald was, you know, the CIA yeah. was able to avoid the obvious questions that the paper trail raises, and now we have extreme secrecy around that paper trail. I mean, what other conclusion are you going to reach? Yeah, no, it's very suspicious.
0: Wow. Um, wrapping up here in, 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 in a little bit, but this is another uh, topic uh, that I know it's um, uh, very hot for you, Jeff, and, um, um, and and part of this records act, uh, yeah, issue. This all ties all together. Uh, can you tell the audience um, who is uh, George Jonides and, and and why is he important? And why are record JFK records specific to his job and his actions and his conduct? Um, they're v- very secret. I know you want to get your hands on them. I know you've been fighting very hard for that. what th- th- This is the chapter in this story that hasn't gotten nearly the amount of attention that it probably should. Um, based on this gentleman's role in this whole saga. Can you, can you kind of go over that for our audience and what you're trying to accomplish with records related to him? Yeah, so George
1: Joannidis was an undercover career, CIA undercover officer who was assigned to the Miami station in 1962. Um, he was, uh, had grown up in New York City, um, moved to the Athens station. He was highly regarded and deputy director Helms sent him to Miami in 1962, uh, after the Bay of Pigs, they kind of cleaned house in Miami, brought in a whole new team. And Joanides was assigned to handle one of the the groups that the CIA was most actively supporting in the fight to overthrow Castro. And that was a group called the Cuban Student Directorate. And these were Cuban students uh, from the University of Havana and other leading schools in Cuba who were disturbed by the hard left turn that the Cuban revolution takes after Castro takes power um, and uh, start to fight him um, and what, take up arms against him. They're kicked out of the university. Uh, they go to, to Miami, they're they're active, actively fighting Castro, organizing opposition to him, and the CIA picks them up and starts funding them. So, and they're, they get a lot of money from the CIA. By mid-1963, they're getting $50,000 a month which in today's dollars is yeah. about $500,000 a month. Wow! So these are very active students, they're capable, they're totally dedicated to overthrowing Castro and they're doing all sorts of oppositional political activities. Joanides is the guy who's in charge of them. He's meeting with their leaders, dispensing money, receiving intelligence reports um, throughout 1963. Well, in the summer of 1963, Lee Harvey Oswald comes to the attention of the Cuban Student Directorate's delegation in New Orleans. This is a group that has delegations in cities throughout North and South America. You know, the opposition to Castro was real. Uh, It was widespread among Cuban exiles. And the DRE was active in New Orleans. So when Oswald goes public in the summer of 1963 as a Castro supporter, a supporter of a pro-Castro group called the the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, He comes to the attention of the DRE and they publicize him and they debate him on the radio and they challenge him on the street and they get into a fight with him and he gets arrested and he's seen on TV. So this CIA funded group run by Joanides is the one who really develops or makes public this obscure character named Lee Harvey Oswald. So three months later, when Oswald is arrested for shooting and killing President Kennedy, the Cuban Student Directorate, they go to the press and they say, we know all about the guy who killed Kennedy. He's a Castro supporter. <sighs> and that dominates the first day coverage. All of the information about the accused assassin and his Cuban efforts, all of it, I mean, every word of it was derived from Oswald's contacts and encounters with the CIA-funded Cuban Student Directorate in New Orleans. None of this was known. Uh th- none of this was known to Oliver Stone. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it was only it only emerged in the records that came out in the 1990s, thanks to the Review Board. So, and the Review Board didn't get very much because they didn't really know who he was. He didn't, he was never interviewed by anybody. The name was totally new to all of us in the JFK research community. And so the JFK, rev- the review board releases a bunch of material which actually isn't even public until after the review board shuts down. Um, it was finally declassified in November, 1998. And in there was a real bombshell, which was not only had Joe has been running those Cuban students who publicized Oswald before and after the assassination, but he had also been called out of retirement in 1978 to serve as the liaison to the House Select Committee on Assassinations, he was the the representative of the Directorate of Operations, and he was supposed to help the HSCA find CIA documents, find CIA people, facilitate, support the congressional investigation. So I went to Bob Blakey and I said, "Bob, did you remember this guy, Joe Anidis?" And he said, "Yeah, he was in the Office of Legal Counsel, and he was helping us, you know, uh, get get stuff and." You know, we had a lot of dealings with him. What about him? I said, well, did you know what he was doing in 1963? And Blakey said, well, we had an agreement with the CIA that we didn't want any people who were operational in 1963 to be working on the operation. I said, well, Bob, he was running the Cuban students who 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 publicized Oswald. And Blakey was dumbfounded. I would think so. and he, <laughs> and, and, and he realized he'd been duped. And, and, and Blakey then went on frontline and he retracted a statement that he had made, which was after he'd finished his investigation, he said, the CIA cooperated with us, cooperated <laughs> with our investigation. Yeah. And he, he, he retracted that and he said, no, they didn't. They lied to me. Uh, and, um, you know, I don't I don't believe a word that they say. Um, and so that so then I file a Freedom of Information Act request for the Joe Anidis material. And, you know. The Freedom of Information Act is a weak law compared to the JFK Records Act. There was no right of action under the JFK Records Act, so I couldn't sue under that. My lawyer didn't see any other way to pursue the case. And so we went to the Freedom of Information Act. We got a lot of information, a lot more information about Joe Anides. We learned, for example, that he had a residence in New Orleans, which I didn't know before (laughs) the, the litigation started well that was where the contacts between the DRE and oswald happened was Go in New figure Orleans. so wh- what was he doing there <laughs> got got pretty much stonewalled on the records um <laughs> and uh and so but we got we got a lot we we got a photograph of and edie's getting a medal there was another thing we didn't know after the guy ha- has con- his agents have contacts with oswald and after he stonewalls the hsca about that knowledge uh he gets a medal from the CIA. Well, why did he get the medal? The memo is classified. So Joe <laughs> was a guy who was at the heart of the story in 1963. His agents had contact with Oswald and publicized him. And he's involved in the story of 1978 when he plays dumb to the House Select Committee and pretends like he didn't know anything about the theory. And the HSCA investigators, Blakey told me, we asked the guy to his face, who was running the DRE in 1963. And Joe and Edie said, I'll get back to you. He himself was the answer to the question. That's how brazen brazen the the compromise of the House Select Committee assassination was. It was a bald-faced lie face to face with the investigators. So of course, these documents are of interest. We didn't get them, but we know now from the litigation that they have a big collection of documents about his secret operations in 1963 and 1978. We did not get those records last December. So the CIA is holding out on them, obviously relevant. Judge Tunheim, by the way, Judge Tunheim was also kind of pissed off about this because You know, when they when when they went to them and said, Well, tell us who this guy Joe Anides was and you know what he was doing in 1963, the CIA coughed up 10 or 12 pages of of documents. Tunheim said, If we had known who this guy was, we would have taken that whole thing in and we would have reviewed everything and we would have released very broadly. So Tunheim said, in a letter to Biden in December, he said, you know, we were, we were deceived on, on, by Joe, on the Joan Edes question, and all of those records should be made public. And so, for
2: a he, Judge to say to the sitting president that was deceived, that, that's pretty strong words.
0: Yeah,
1: right. So, you have Blakey, the head of one investigation, saying we were deceived, and you have Tunheim, the head of another investigation, saying we were deceived. So, these are obviously important records. And, this is, you know, this is another test case of does the law have any reality? You know, because if it has any reality, we get these documents. If we don't get the and Edis file, the law is defunct. I mean, period. It's a it's a very clear test case. It could not be clearer. And that's where we stand right now. And so, you know, we bring this up in the context of the lawsuit, which is not just about these records. These records are just one case study in the problem. We need a comprehensive solution to the JFK records problem, and when we do that, we will get information that is
0: highly relevant to the causes of the assassination. There's no doubt about that. Well, let's let's wrap up with that. So, so Larry, where I guess in the in, in the timeline of litigation here, where where are you at? Uh, what, what's what's next? And really, what's the what what is the end game? Um, for, for you guys, we we trying to ultimately um, a, a accomplish here because this is this is really important, and I know you guys are spearheading uh, this effort. Uh, I think it's vitally uh, important, and if you can educate um, you know our listeners on um, again, you know wh- where you're at, where 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 you're going with this.
2: So we named both the president um, individually and the National Archives now. The President uh, so and we we're seeking injunctive relief. We're asking the President to comply with the statute. Um, we're also asking National Archives uh, to comply with the statute, asking the judge to issue an order. What does that mean? The National Archives, um, when the art went out of business in two thousand, the National Archives published in the Federal Register um, a final rule where they moved the national, uh, the ARB's regulations, such as like the finding what an assassination record is into their set of regulations. And in doing so, the National Archives said that it was the successor in function to the ARB. What does successor in function mean? Uh, It means to me at the minimum, uh, what the ARB did, which was ask the agency to search for records, determine if they're assassination records and determine if they can be declassified or not. Um, the ARB had the power to overrule the agencies. And then only the president could uh, could overrule, could veto, in essence, the ARB's determination. So um, the, the National Archives has not com- followed up on any of the outstanding search requests that um, were in existence at the time the ARB uh, went out of business. We now know there are more records that the AR that the ARB did not see. They're also missing records. The collection is a mess <clears throat> um, in terms of American citizens being able to search for records. So we're asking for this sort of relief. Now we for under the uh for the National Archives, we're we're using the uh, Administrative Procedures Act and uh the Federal Records Act. For the president, the president is not an agency for purposes of. The Administrative Procedures Act. So we found uh, some uh, pre-APA common law decisions that we're using as that basis to go after them. So we filed a complaint in October. Um, <clears throat> it's on the Mary Farrell website. Uh, it's Mary Farrell F E R R E L L. So if you just Google Mary Farrell dot um, org, I think it is. Uh, the the complaints there. We anticipate that the government is going to file a motion to dismiss. well wow. Shortly. And um at that point, um you know, we think we have. I assume it's going to be on, partially on grounds of standing. Uh, as an environmental lawyer, I'm very familiar with standing arguments. <laughs> um, so I I think we're in good shape. But you know, you never know. We're we're going to be facing a uh, hundred years of. Uh, Department of Justice experience in, in, uh, and yeah. so uh, we, we have a uh, first uh, the initial conference with the judge I think is scheduled in May perhaps um, I forgot what precisely but anyway so th- we follow the complaint they haven't followed an answer yet um, we presume they're going to file a motion dismissed before they follow their answer and if they do that we'll be knowing in the next week or so if that's the case and
1: i should say um bill um i cover these i'm covering the lawsuit very closely in my uh jfk facts subscription newsletter jfkfacts.org um uh, uh .com. and uh so you know when motions are filed um when we have a hearing kind of the day to day stuff of the um of the tr- of the trial as it unfolds will be covered on jfk facts <laughs> that substack and the background material, you know, the lawsuit itself, some of the press coverage, um, the history of the lawsuit is all available on Maryfarrell.org. So, you know, we're just beginning to go now and a lot, a lot is going to happen in the next few months around this and we'll, we're going to get our day in
2: court. So, well, hopefully, yeah. <laughs> we're, yeah. we're, gonna our, we're, we're definitely going to get our day in court on the motion to dismiss. Um, yeah. we're, we're, we're confident we'll, will survive that um, the uh, and, and the, the, the action was filed in the Northern District of California. Um, we have a number of members of Mary Farrell who live there who are researchers. And so that mm-hmm. it's not in the district court uh, in the DC district, it's in the, the Northern District of California. Um, and, um, you know, we'll see what happens. The um the judge in the case, Richard Seaborg, um,
1: is uh notable. Um, he's the judge who threw out the um the citizenship question on the census that President Trump and Secretary of Commerce uh Ross wanted to put in. And it was Judge Seaborg who, who said uh who threw that out. Um so, We're hopeful. He's a judge who's, you know, has stood up to um, expressions of executive branch power and checked them and said, you know, you don't have the authority to do that. So um, that's, you know, that's our
2: situation going into court. And just again, the, the big picture again is that the collection is not necessarily the universe of JFK records that are out there. Um and we that's a very important point. We've developed as part of our complaints, we've developed a list of documents that we believe are extents that are not part of the collection and that um, need to be searched for and need to be put into the collection so that the American people can see them. Yeah. Again, this is about um, compliance yeah. with the law. This is not about whether there was a conspiracy to kill the president. This is about complying with this yeah. very powerful law, which was, was enacted because the Freedom of Information Act, and it says that right there in the introductory clauses of the statute, that the way the uh, national security executive order was being interpreted and the way the uh, Freedom of Information Act was being implemented, there was not resulting in release of documents. I mean, most of the records that we got in the 90s and the 80s were a result of individual lawsuits filed under the Freedom of Information Act. And that has a number of exceptions would have been exploited by the agencies. In fact, um, the FBI was using the law enforcement exception to try, and as far as I know, the FBI is not actively engaged in an investigation of the Kennedy assassination. Um, as late as, you know, uh, 20, uh, 2018, the FBI was holding back 6,000 records about the mafia. Um, wow. So, which raises all kinds of questions. Right.
0: Um, I'm sure D- different podcasts, Larry, Jeff, thank you so much for being on the litigation psychology podcast. It's a fascinating topic against to my, I-, I deeply just personally appreciate all of your efforts. I will continue to, to follow um, um, your work. Definitely oh, yeah, want to one have more you. Thing. Yeah. yeah. One
2: more thing. I forgot. Yeah. This is sure. really important. In addition yeah. to the lawsuit, we are trying to get Congress to hold an oversight hearing. Uh, there nice committees, uh, the committee, the Oversight Committee in the House, and the Homeland Security Committee in the Senate have continuing jurisdiction over the the JFK Records Act. If you live in a state, if you have a representative that's sitting on the over the House Oversight Committee, or if you have a senator that's sitting on the Homeland Committee um, uh, homeland uh, yeah committee, uh, and you're interested in this topic, please write your congressperson or your senator to ask them to hold an oversight hearing on the failure of the executive branch to comply with the JFK Records Act. We have a lawsuit filed, but we want to get a public hearing on the statute. Hopefully, a public hearing would put pressure on the agencies and the president to comply with the act. So I just wanted to make sure that your listeners
0: yeah.
2: play a role in Sorry. this matter.
1: And 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 your listeners should know Judge Tunheim supports this too. He was disturbed by the sham release last December. And in his letter to Biden, where he urged maximum disclosure, um, afterwards, when he saw the results of it, he said Congress needs to step in and hold hearings about why the JFK Records Act is not being enforced. So there yeah. is a congressional piece to this too. You know, yeah we're, we're working with the press. We're working with the legal system, but we need to engage with the political system as well, because the a solution ultimately has to come from the government itself.
2: And and the other committee that potentially could help is the intelligence committees of both the house and the Senate. So again, uh, your listeners, if they're interested in this topic, they should look, look up their congressperson, see if they yeah. sit on, on the intelligence or oversight committees in the House. And it look up their senators and see if they sit on the Homeland Security or the Intelligence Committees in the Senate, and if they do, please write a letter asking them to uh, hold an oversight hearing.
0: Now, it begs begs a final question here: Uh, it it took a it took a feature film in Oliver Stone, really, okay, in 1992, to get this thing to get the public demanding. I mean, public, you know, with pitchforks and torches, right? Does it take another type of effort to now get this to the next level? I think Oliver Stone's film got to start a, created enormous um pressure, I think, uh, on the government. And then also an enormous uh, just kind of curiosity in the American public and then a demanding American public. What can be do? What can be done now to create a similar type of energy? To, to keep this momentum going, because obviously they're trying to kick this can down the road, kill the momentum. What can be done to get this back out? How, how can JFK become important to the public just like it was in 1992 where it went the, to an act of Congress? How do we do that now? I think
2: I think we are trying to piggyback on the whole greater issue of classification. There's clearly overclassification in this, in this country. What we're learning is Look, President Biden and President Trump did not pack their records by themselves and carry them physically to their <laughs> homes, right? People <laughs> yeah. did that for them. There is a problem with overclassification in this country. Yep. And if we can't get 60-year-old records declassified, how are we going to get records of the Trump and the Biden administration declassified? We have a problem in this country and we want to use this this current conversation in the country, use the JFK assassination as the poster child, right? For this problem. And so yes. we're hoping that the momentum of that declassification or overclassification that we can use, piggyback on that.
0: Outstanding. Guys, Jeff, Larry, thank you so much. An incredible two hours. I know uh, I got a lot out of this. I know our listeners will. Um, thank you so much to our audience. I hope you enjoyed that. Litigation Psychology Podcast brought to you by Courtroom Sciences. I'm Dr. Bill Kanaski. We'll see you next time.